So self-leadership is this inner emotional regulation, the steadfastness to know who you are and what you're all about, no matter what's happening around you. And it's needed more than ever. And when we find someone like that in an organization, we love them. Like We lose them too often in our companies because we don't appreciate them. But self-leadership is this just the secret sauce that makes your life better, makes your career more enjoyable, and I think makes you more employable. In a world of career uncertainty, there is one variable you have total control over, yourself. Welcome to Forever Employable Stories, where expert digital transformation consultant and successful entrepreneur Jeff Gotthelf will share conversations with unique and inspiring individuals who have taken charge of their professional lives, leveraged their expertise, built an audience, and future-proofed their careers so you can learn how to do the same. Here's your host, Jeff Gotthelf. By all accounts, Lori Rudiman was extremely successful. She was an HR executive at leading companies. Her career was moving in the right direction. She was getting promotions. And then she decided to quit. She realized that for her, the nine to five routine was never going to be fulfilling. Using her expertise, her experience, and her insight into the world of human resources, Lori turned to writing, to becoming an entrepreneur, to becoming a strategist, and to becoming a speaker. She's written a book, she started her own company, and she's focused on teaching folks this concept of self-leadership. In our conversation, Lori tells her dynamic story of why she decided to quit the nine-to-five world and how she prepared for that in order to become successful in her new career and to become forever employable. I know you'll enjoy the conversation. Take a listen. Hey, folks. Welcome to another episode of Forever Employable Stories. Super duper excited to have with me today, human resources leader turned writer, entrepreneur, strategist, speaker, the forever employable Lori Rudiman is on the show today. Lori, welcome to Forever Employable Stories. Well, thank you. I'm super pleased to be here as well. So let's have a fun conversation and hopefully help some people. I'm super excited about that because look, as we talked about when we were prepping for the interview, you have a unique perspective on this, particularly because not only have you become forever employable and you've done a lot of the things that I talk about in the book, you come from the world of HR, which gives you an interesting perspective on employment, longevity, especially for folks who are full-time employed. This is an, it's been an interesting conversation since Forever Employable has come out. There is an immediate perception that it's for people who want to be autonomous, freelancers, consultants. But I explicitly wrote it as well for those folks, absolutely, but as well for folks who are full-time employees as well. So we're going to dive into that conversation in just a little bit. But before we get started, I'd love to give you an opportunity to tell the folks a little bit about yourself and your career history and kind of how you got to where you are today. Well, you know, there's nothing less interesting than listening to someone rattle off their bona fides. So I certainly won't do that. But I am a 26-year veteran of the world of human resources. And I started out in HR when the show Friends was on in America and not in reruns. So that was a pretty big deal. And Bill Clinton was president. And I thought I was going to go to law school. And from there, I just kind of got stuck in this world of HR and within a decade, realized it wasn't a good fit for me and went out on my own and stayed adjacent to the world of HR, but 
became a writer, a speaker, an entrepreneur, but really came to terms with my failure quickly so that I could do cooler and more interesting things. So I often tell people I'm just a failed HR lady and somehow I managed to make it work. Amazing. It's brave enough to just come out and say, look, I failed at this thing. And I want to I dig into that a little bit. But you said 10 years in HR. And then at a certain point, you realize or decided that, look, this was not for you. You're going to step out of the nine to five routine. What was the deciding factor? Well, I was at an airport and it was probably year 10 or year 11 of this career that I was on. And I was traveling all over laying people off. And I had this realization while eating Starburst and drinking Pepsi for dinner while in between flights that everybody around me was putting themselves first. The organization always had money, even when it said it didn't. Leaders always managed to keep their jobs, even when others didn't. And even line managers were always too busy to meet with me in human resources, always prioritizing their own individual careers. And I thought, why not me? And so I had this moment at the airport where I'm reading a celebrity trash magazine, because why would I do anything to make myself feel better, right? I was just kind of in a funk. And I thought, I can't live another day like this. And it's not like I woke up the next morning and quit my job. But from there, I started getting curious about people who are really kicking butt and taking names. How do they put themselves first? How do they double down on their own individual well-being? How are they self-leaders? And as I started to talk to people, I thought, well, I can do some of this, some of this I don't like. And I made a decision a couple of years later to leave human resources. But it all came from this weird moment at an airport where everybody looked like they were happy, except for me. <laughs> I, keep, I keep imagining airports full of happy people. <laughs> well, they're going to Disney. They're, going, <laughs> they're doing all sorts of fun things, going to Hawaii and going to the French right. Riviera. And here I am going to some podunk town in America to deliver bad news as if I were the one who created the bad news. I was just a mouthpiece for the organization. And I think one of the moments in that airport was me realizing that I believed in autonomy. I believed in my own voice. I believed in being accountable for my own decisions. And Jeff, I know you can see me, but your audience can't. I am five feet tall and I am blonde. And when I was younger, I was perfectly designed to deliver bad news. Nobody could be angry with me. I look like this sweet little pixie. And I thought this organization is taking advantage of my natural gifts to communicate a message. And I wanted to use my power for good and not evil. Amazing. Amazing. I keep having images of Up in the Air, the movie. Yeah, that's right. I was George Clooney before it was cool, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) That's That's a great tagline. Amazing. So you're at the airport. You're kind of realizing that this is not how I'm going to continue for the rest of my life. You decide you can make a change. Takes you a couple of years to make that change, and you decide to go out on your own, right? So you're, you're not leaving the company or moving to a different position. You're going to go out on your own. That terrifies a lot of people. It terrified me when I did it in 2012. I had a three month runway and two little kids, and it was, you know, absolutely terrifying for me. Like, if this doesn't work out, how are we going to eat? And so, how did you prepare for going out on your own? Luckily, Jeff, I have a wonderful and supportive partner, and I didn't have any children at the time. And so it was real different for me to do the math than it would be for someone who has children or their caregivers or whatever the situation. But, you know, I have to tell you, I did look internally and I looked at other human resources jobs because I know that it is possible to be an entrepreneur, as we used to call it, right, to make change within an organization. And I actually thought, 
I would have a better chance of changing the organization from the inside than going outside and trying to come back in and influence. Like that just doesn't happen, right? I wanted to be where the action was, where the decisions were being made. But in the world of human resources, we are often bucketed and stereotyped. We're told you're good at compliance. You're good at regulation. You're not very good at strategy. And I didn't see a way to overcome that stereotype, no matter how hard I tried. So I interviewed for some jobs internally. And then I looked outside of the organization and I heard a lot of the same things that I heard when I interviewed for the job I didn't like. Like, oh, we believe in innovation and disruption, even before all that was cool, right? And we lean into empathy and compassion. And I realized that, you know, maybe other people could do something with these opportunities but I couldn't. And so I thankfully had been very prepared financially to do this, but you know, it wasn't an easy decision to leave at all. And it was very scary and very daunting. And I don't take for granted the fact that here in America, I had health insurance, I had benefits, but a lot of people don't have that. And so it's not an easy decision. And that's why I do what I do to speak honestly about the world of work. It's super important. And look, I mean, the health insurance question is, is a massive one. You know, when, when I went out on my own, um, I, I think I was paying something like $3,000 a month or something for, for health insurance for a family of four, which is, that's just for health insurance, right? That's food or rent. So it's a serious thing. In Forever Employable, I have five steps. It's very important to have steps so people can follow the steps. The first step, I think, is one of the, one of the, the more important ones, which is called plant your flag. Planting your flag means if you're going to put yourself out there, right? regardless of whether you're, you're becoming a consultant or whatever, you're going to put yourself out there. What's going to be the foundation for your platform? What do you want to be known for? So when you set out, you made this decision, you set out to break out on your own, what flag did you plant for yourself? Well, Jeff, while I was working, I was doing this crazy thing called blogging before anybody knew that this was a thing. So this is 2004 through 2007. And I was testing the waters as a writer, as someone with ideas, but I fundamentally knew that I wanted to speak honestly about the world of work, but I didn't want to just jump out into the marketplace and do that. So I planted a flag online at first anonymously, and then using my own name, writing about my ideas about policy, politics, money, wealth, power, all of it, but with my expertise in human resources. And the really beautiful thing about blogging or writing on LinkedIn or whatever it is you decide to do is that nobody's looking at first. And that gives you absolute freedom to screw up, to do it wrong, to practice. And it's through getting those at-bats, getting through the repetition of doing this on a regular basis that I developed a voice. And so I think, right, the first step is to plant a flag. And I said, I am an HR leader with something different to say. But then I really had to work on developing my voice so that I didn't sound like you know, a pint-sized Tony Robbins or, you know, want to be Gary V. I had to figure out what does it mean to be Lori Rudiman, who has something interesting to say about employment and policy. It looks fascinating to hear you say this because, look, when I talk to folks who have read the book or are interested in doing this or asking questions about it, I ask them, I said, I said what's keeping you from doing this? Terrified. I'm terrified of put, putting anything out there. What if I say the wrong thing? What if I piss somebody off? And how do I even know what to write about? And, and I love what you said. You said, I just started writing, I started blogging, putting my thoughts out there on a variety of different topics. And initially, no one's listening, right? 
that's the thing people people are like, oh my God, it's going to be on the front page of the Huffington Post or whatever. Like they're going to put it in, uh, in the New York Times. They're not. No, <laughs> no one cares. No, no one cares. cares. Initially, nobody cares. But once you, once you kind of find what people do care about, start doubling down on it and then obviously honing that particular skill. But that's, that's, it's really, really great advice. Right? Get out there, just start doing it because nobody cares <laughs> initially. For sure. And I think the other idea around doing it anonymously, don't use your work phone or your work laptop. Everybody has an old computer sitting at their home, right? Or they can go to the library. We have access to technology everywhere, but go somewhere where you can sit and focus and think. And I think writing, even if you're a terrible writer, is a great exercise in thinking. But the other thing you want to do is you want to find people who are writing about the thing you want to be known for. There are vibrant communities out there related to marketing, supply chain, pharmaceuticals, you know, internet, security, whatever your jam is, there's a community out there. So don't be intimidated about being anonymous and writing quietly, but also go see what other people are doing. You know, Jeff, it was interesting to me because at first when people didn't come to my blog, I got a little depressed. It's like, oh, six people came to my blogspot website today. You know, that's terrible. But now, in retrospect, how lovely that I had the freedom to work on my style, my grammar, the way I deliver funny sentences, like all of that had permission to be terrible. And I don't know, I feel like it was a gift that paid off years later as I became a fully fledged writer. So yeah, just get started, right? And don't even do it under your own name. Again, fantastic advice. I started just recently started making YouTube videos, short ones for my blog, my my younger kid, she's 14, she ridicules me for them all the time for using like the stock transitions in iMovie and that type of thing, you know? And then you go to YouTube and you're like, oh, 13 people <laughs> watched yeah. my video. Yeah. To me, that hurts a little bit because my blogs typically get a lot more, a lot more yeah. traffic and that type of thing. But it's like, all right, look, that's good because I'm not really good at this yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you want people to see you being terrible in learning or do you want them to see a more evolved version of it? The other thing I've learned in my own career is that not every medium is for me. So I'm not for YouTube. I'm not for Instagram Live. I'm definitely not for TikTok. What I have to say requires more attention and I want people to be alone in thinking. And that's why writing is the premier way that I communicate followed by podcasting. But my YouTube channel is a hot mess. But the reason why I do it is so I could practice speaking and going on other people's podcasts. I've been on CNN. I've been on NPR, these American networks, right? And, and MSNBC and NBC. And it's good practice so that when I'm called upon in the big moments, I've already nailed it in the small moments. Like I've got those reps in. So failure is so overrated. Like let's fail all the time. Let's laugh at it because through failure, you're learning constantly. And that's been an important lesson in my own life. Amazing. And practice as well. Just, just kidding. Get that around. Let's talk specifics. So what techniques did you use and are you still using to reach and grow an audience? What's worked particularly well for you? And you started to hint at that a little bit. And then I'm curious as well about what's been less successful and why you think that is. Well, Jeff, the most successful thing I ever did was start a newsletter. And I can't believe it because people tell me, oh, email, overrated. I get so many emails, blah, 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 email. 
The number one way that people connect with me and really share my stuff and the way I get business is through my email newsletter. Not a Slack channel, not a community, not you know some weird newsletter through another system, but I actually write a newsletter in Google Drive and then I have a team that puts it into my newsletter format and it goes out and it's very plain. It's not fancy, but it's absolutely the way that I have built my business and continue to help my business grow. So I double down on email. It is still the killer app. I have to agree with you on that as well. Just again, my, my experience mirrors that no matter what I try, the highest level of engagement is always, always through email. What have you tried that's been less successful? Have you tried some things that didn't work out? Some channels? Yeah, I've done just about everything through every platform. You know, when yeah. Vine was a thing, I did some oh, yeah. Vines, right? You know, I did some some stories which were fleets on Twitter. I mean, I, I've tried the video thing. And I think video is fine if you're B2C or if you're younger, or you're just interested in being silly and entertaining. But I'm not here to entertain. Like, I'm not some circus performer. I'm here to teach. Yeah. And I have to find platforms that are good for teaching. I had a tremendous amount of success on LinkedIn learning. I'm a LinkedIn learning instructor. And what's helpful is that I teach these courses, but people are connecting with me on LinkedIn and then they're subscribing to my newsletter, right? It all becomes an ecosystem. So creating the ecosystem has what has really differentiated me in the marketplace and it's been really successful. But yeah, like if you're over the age of 35, like why are you on TikTok? You got a family, you know, you got stuff going on. So do what's authentic and realistic and let these younger generations dominate some of these other platforms. Excellent. Cool. Speaking of sort of traditional platforms that still have remarkable relevance in 2021, you wrote a book. <laughs> yeah. Which is amazing. But it's, again, never ceases to amaze me the impact that books still have today, right? And the book's called Betting on You, How to Put Yourself First and Finally Take Control of your career. First and foremost, why? Why write a book? Well, I was late to writing a book. For someone who identifies as a writer, I didn't write this book until late in my career because it's hard and it takes a lot of time and it takes focus away from the easy things, right? It's easy to write a LinkedIn article. It's hard to write a book, but I wrote it because it absolutely validates me as a thought leader in a way that a tweet is not going to do. So it was really important in my career that I write a book. And I had opportunities to self-publish. And I think that's absolutely worthwhile. And I think there are business publishers out there that do a great job. But I thought, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to swing for the stars and really try to knock, knock it out of the park. And so I went and got a literary agent. I got a book writing coach. And I pitched the book to the five big publishers. And it got into a bidding war. <laughs> so it was really Amazing. affirmation again that maybe I should have dreamt a little bigger beforehand. Like, what did I wait so long for? You know, and I wrote the book and then COVID happened and it was a bit of a blessing because it gave me an opportunity to kind of update it and add a few things, but it came out right before the insurrection here in the United States. And so just last week, like 10 months post publication, almost 10 months was the first time I signed a book in real life. Oh, wow. So yeah, I mean, it's a different experience as an author, but yeah. the book is going into its second printing in January and it's absolutely given me validation in a way that um, just surprises me every day. That's amazing. Again, I'd like to call out some of the things that 
you share because I think it's it's really important. You saw to publish a book, but you're like, look, I'm going to shoot for the stars, but I'm going to do this with support. I'm going to do this with help, right? So I'm going to get a literary agent, which you kind of need to pitch the you do. the big publishers, right? So so that's important. But hey, a writing coach as well, right? Because writing books is hard and it's not writing an email and it's not writing a no. blog post or, or a series of tweets or even a, a thread, <laughs> even a Twitter thread, <laughs> right? And so getting that writing coach is absolutely important. I burned through four writing partners on my first book before I got it over the finish line. For Forever Employable, I had a ghostwriter that I worked with, right? Because I wanted to get it done and I wanted to get it done right. And so getting help is absolutely, a, it's not cheating. No. It's a viable tactic for getting yourself ahead and getting, getting great product out there. You know, all the great executive leaders out there have coaches for everything. They have a fitness coach. They have a speaking coach. They have a coach that's working with them psychologically. And then if they deem to be an author, right, many of these CEOs want to write, they do get a ghostwriter, at the very least a writing coach. And so I employed a friend of mine. His name is Nick Morgan. He's out of Boston. And he will coach you through the process of getting an agent through the process of writing a, you know, a book proposal, through the manuscripts, through all of your different drafts. But of course, it's an investment. And I think that's what's prohibitive for a lot of people. But for me, the investment was so incredibly important because I knew that in order to bet on myself, I had to have some skin in the game, right? So I had to put some money into it. And I knew that what got me there to the point that I wanted to write a book, as you know, all the Marshall Goldsmith says, wouldn't get me there to the finish line of writing something that is a category bestseller. So that book coach was everything for me. And what I've been able to do is to share that information with other people who have since used that book coach and their books have come out. So now it's incredibly rewarding as well. So I feel like I've done some good in the world by sharing the secret sauce. It's not like I woke up one day, Jeff, and just said, I'm going to write a book. That doesn't happen. So demystifying work is important to me. So why wouldn't I demystify the book process? And look, it's good to have an explicit purpose for it as well. It's not, it's not just say, there's, um, there's a great quote I heard years ago. I was speaking to my an old friend, Dave Cray, and he, it was a friend of his who went to film school. And you, you start film school and, and you go into whatever film school 101 is, whatever like the first class is in film school 101. And the, you know, it's a lecture hall with 800 people in it. And the professor starts off and he says, do you want to make a movie? Or do you want to have made a movie? Which is a really interesting question. You can say the exact same thing about a book, right? Do you want to write a book? Or do you want to have written a book? If you can answer this, I want to write a book and here's why, right? And then with all the support that you mentioned, you can really start to put together a killer product. Yeah. If you're in it, like, I just want to, I want to have written a book, that's probably end up with, with a lesser product is my guess. Real interesting. I love yeah. it. Good question, right? Mm-hmm. Film school professors. <laughs> <laughs> they say one good question can change your life, though. And I believe that. And that's like a really important question. I mean, it's the difference between, you know, talking about it and doing it, right? Which is exactly what you've described. And have previously said it took me too long to write the book, but I'm so glad I actually did it the way I did it because I think it was a better product, having gone through all the pain of like, what do I want to write about and how do I do this? I ended up in a really good place. So I, I feel good about it. Amazing. And congratulations. It's no small feat. And, and I'm 
that feeling of signing that book is amazing. <laughs> the feeling of just human contact was Fair amazing. Enough. My goodness, like that was different. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's getting better. Yeah. <laughs> see. Hey, so let's talk about corporate loyalty for a second. So look, I mean, I have a perspective on this. My point of view is that corporate loyalty is dead. You know, my best friend's dad worked at DuPont for 40 years, right? Retired with a pension, the whole thing. To me, that's like, it's like a unicorn. It's like somebody saw the Yeti somewhere out in the woods. I was like, I've never seen that. I've heard of it, but I've never seen it, right? I actually do believe that it's dead. And I think that folks, especially those folks that are employed full-time and are intending to stay that way, need to build up a presence, a personal brand, some thought leadership, a portfolio of work in order to become and remain forever employable. But many, particularly full-time employees, many resist this. And so I'm curious, especially given your work as an HR leader in many companies, right? Why do you think that is? Why would a lot of folks resist the idea as a full-time employee of creating a personal brand or, or some thought leadership or putting their ideas out there? Well, you know, I can relate with your friend's dad. My dad worked at the phone company for 25 years and even my husband, he's bounced around a little bit, but he is an employee. He's not an entrepreneur and he's an executive. And I think there's a fear that people have of being too bold and too brash and attracting attention in the wrong way. Because one of the things that's most important to the corporate ecosystem is that you're fully on board. And it used to be up until recently that if you did the things that we say you should do, you develop a LinkedIn profile or you develop some expertise and speak at conferences, you draw the wrong inferences among executives. They think, oh, she's building a brand to leave or she's building a brand to take my job. I think that has changed during COVID. And if anything, one of the things that differentiates you as a, you know, an employee with talent, an employee with potential, an employee who wants to stay is going out and being an expert. And so if anything, we have this new opportunity, right, for you to be an emerging leader in your organization. So I think organizations are so just jolted by this talent shortage, by the great reshuffling that's happening out there that they're less intimidated by someone building a new brand. And they're more open to the idea that this is someone we want to keep. We believe that, you know, in order to fight attrition, we want you to go to the conference. We want you to invest in yourself. So what I'm saying, Jeff, is that it's changing and we're in the midst of that change. But it's definitely scary. You want to draw attention to your awesome skills, but you don't want to target on your back. So what do you advise people do? It's, it's really interesting. So there's a couple of things. First of all, I advise people to get their ideas out there and to start sharing. Now, now obviously, if there's proprietary information, they need to sanitize their, their work or run a past corpcom or something along those lines. But the, the opportunity to share what you know, in my opinion, is beneficial to you personally. But it's, I think it's actually tremendously beneficial to the organization. If I go to an event and I see you up there and you, you work for some bank, right? Yeah. And you're up there and you're like, look, at, at our bank, here's what we tried to build better products for our customers. And, you know, we tried this thing and it didn't work. We learned a ton from that. And here's what we're trying now. To me, that speaks volumes about the culture at your organization. And as someone who's looking for that kind of workplace, yeah. I am instantly far more likely to look for opportunities within your organization. And that starts to attract a higher caliber of talent to your organization. And so I think it's a win-win here. 
I think convincing the the organization is still a little tough, although I'm glad to hear that you think that the the mood is changing on that a little bit. And I I think people should be more scared of their companies and look and this was your job. You flew around <laughs> firing people, right? Laying laying them off. I did. Right? I feel as if a, like an organization that does more than just allow their people to go to a conference, but encourages it is actually an organization that believes in recognition. And we know based on studies from, you know, Gallup and Work Human and all these organizations out there that organizations that believe in recognition are dominating in the marketplace. And so if you're a leader right now and you see somebody, I don't know, dipping their toe in the water on LinkedIn or speaking at conferences, you should encourage more of that. That's the kind of stuff that's going to get them to stay, to be more engaged in their work, to be more productive employees. So I don't know. I believe the pyramid is shifting. It's inverting. And I'm super excited about what this means. Because if we can ask people to start being more of themselves and speaking and developing their own brands, what we're actually asking them to do is to be self-leaders, individually accountable for their careers, totally in charge of their own experiences and also peer leaders to other people. They become living, breathing, walking manuals in a way that HR can only hope to do through our crappy training programs. So more of this, please go out and lean into your expertise and teach others in the process. I'm going to tell you one quick anecdote and then I have two more questions for you. When I first moved to Barcelona a few years ago, I had this great idea that I was going to build an executive retreat here in Barcelona, pre-COVID, right? Who doesn't want to come here? Oh, I thought, I thought it was a, a shoe-in, right? And it was going to be high-end, top dollar, you know, three-day sort of experience safari out here. Like, you know, work stuff during the days, cultural stuff at nights, great food, culture, the whole thing. Who wouldn't want to do this? So I had the idea and being the product guy that I am, the next thing that I did was customer development. I went and I found some executives who I thought would be target audience, and I started talking to them and pitching this idea to them. And you know what they said? They said exactly what you just said. They said, I can't do this because it looks like I'm job hunting. And so no matter how cool it is or how awesome it is, unless it's a company-sponsored event where everybody who goes is from my company, I can't go. Because it, the perception is that I'm looking to leave and I can't afford that. So not heartbreaking. It is. And, and you nailed it you know, right on the head. So just before I told you that anecdote, you started hinting about self-leadership, which you talk about in your book. So tell us a little bit more about that. What is self-leadership and why is it valuable? Well, self-leadership is very, it's a very simple concept. It's just the art and science of individual accountability. But expressing self-leadership is where the rubber meets the road. Because it means demonstrating a work ethic, not having imposter syndrome, totally knowing you're competent, and doing the right thing according to your values, even when people around you are doing something different. So for me, it's someone who shows up at work and puts their head down and doesn't pay attention to the gossip or the drama. It's someone who, in the face of chaos, understands who they are and what they're doing within the organization and doubles down on that, no matter what's going on. Self-leadership is this thing that happens when CEOs flip and CFOs leave the organization and there's rumors about PE money and acquisitions. And you go, you know what? All that may happen and that is bananas. Today, I'm just going to focus on what I'm paid to do, right? And I'm going to have a good time doing it. So self-leadership is this 
inner emotional regulation, the steadfastness to know who you are and what you're all about, no matter what's happening around you. And it's needed more than ever. And when we find someone like that in an organization, we love them. Like We lose them too often in our companies because we don't appreciate them. But self-leadership is this just the secret sauce that makes your life better, makes your career more enjoyable, and I think makes you more employable. Got it. And so I guess it's a self-serving question. I wonder what you think. Is, is becoming forever employable, is that a form of self-leadership? Well, it is one form of self-leadership. It is one way to show that we are dedicated to learning, to growing, to really knowing who we are and what we want in this world and not listening to the noise. You know, a lot of people stay in an organization just and they're forever employable, I'm using air quotes, out of fear. But people who make the choice to be forever employable and stay within a corporate entity and are expressing self-leadership are doing it out of confidence. They're doing it out of maturity and they're doing it out of a choice that they're making. And I think that concept of choice is so important. Many of us fall victim to learned helplessness in our organization. Oh, I have to stay here. I have kids. I got a mortgage. You know, they're going to go to college. Very expensive. Or I just, I bought a new car and I I don't want to risk not being able to make my car payment, right? That's not self-leadership. That's just being a victim. and, And that's not forever employable. Eventually that runs out. Maybe that'll be a sequel. Hopefully unfireable. That's going to be like. <laughs> That's a great title. You better yeah. <laughs> dominate that now. That's yeah, excellent. <laughs> Hopefully unfireable. I'm going gonna, gonna to write that down. Okay. One last question for you, and then we'll say goodbye. So look, we've talked a lot about full-time employed folks, and I'm glad that we have, because I really do think that this conversation is applicable to them as well. So if you had to share one tip for folks who are employed full-time right now, and they're thinking about their career, and they're thinking about its immediate future, what would you advise those folks? What's kind of a top tip for full-time employed folks? The most important thing you can do is pad your savings account while you are employed, because right off the bat, it takes 18 to 24 months to even see any sort of return on all the work you're doing as a consultant. So if you don't have 18 to 24 months of your salary and savings, and very few people do, need to start thinking about a different approach maybe to being a consultant. Maybe it's a slow roll. Maybe it's a side hustle. But here in America, there's an organization called score.org that can help you build a business plan before you leave. And there are small business entities globally that can advise you on how to create that business plan and how to create that cash flow plan before you exit. And I think that's one thing that I regret not doing. Well, I did have a savings account and I had money put away. I didn't really understand a path to revenue. And that's so important because, you know, without a path to revenue, you're just playing around. And that's what I did until I sat with someone who was like, we need to really rethink this. You know, we need to rethink your expenses, how you acquire clients, what you do with them, what the pipeline is once you do acquire them for more than one engagement, all of that. Had I thought about that a little bit sooner, I think my husband might have been happier. (laughs) Right on. That's really good advice. Look, a lot of folks are like, oh, you should start writing. You should start, like, like practically, yeah. just get your financial house in order so that you can, you can make the move. Amazing. Lori Rudiman, thank you so much for your insight, for your time, for your wisdom, for the stories. This was fantastic. And I'm thrilled that you were here. My friend, I learned a lot from you as well. So thank you for having me. Terrific. Take care. Hey, it's Jeff. Thanks again for joining me for this episode of Forever Employable Stories. If you enjoyed the show and learned something new, tell a friend. 
The best way you can help us grow is to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and send this episode to someone you think can benefit from it. As always, feel free to reach out and connect on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you. Do you know someone who has a great forever employable story? Someone who has built a platform and an audience using their unique skills and experience? If so, I want to talk to them. Send me a note at jeff at gothealth.co and let me know.